We are living in Friday. Death. Death. And all I hear the majority of the time are churches moving on to Sunday. Like they're showing up with this, not with the suffering, not, not with the suffering Christ. They want to give me the shiny new resurrection Jesus. And I keep telling people, no, we are still suffering. You know, we're in between Friday and Saturday. We are not on Sunday. We are grieving. And I think the prosperity gospel has a lot to do that. The capitalist system, let's get them back to work. Let's get them in church. And it's like, no, we are mourning. Where are the Rachels? There's so many people dying. Why are people not in the street weeping and gnashing? Why don't we have on sackcloth and ashes? Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Starlet Thomas. She's the minister to empower congregations with the D.C. Baptist Convention. She's also an author, activist, and what she calls a race abolitionist, which she'll describe in the interview. I've enjoyed getting to know Starlet over the last few years at meetings of the Baptist World Alliance, the North American Baptist Fellowship, and other gatherings, and really just enjoy having conversations about really important topics like race and religion and politics and I think you'll catch from this program that we have fun talking about these issues and challenging one another and and others on these topics. So I was really excited to essentially have one of these conversations again, but hit the record button this time and and share some of her thoughts with you. And so I was really glad that we could have this conversation at such a, a weighty time in our country, our society, as we're dealing with some of these topics, race, religion, politics. And so I was glad that Starlet was able to, to join us to have this important conversation. So that here's my interview with Starlet Thomas, author, activist, race abolitionist, and minister to empower congregations at the D.C. Baptist Convention. Starlet, welcome to the show. Thank you. And... We, I'm going to set this first question up. It is, I have to look at the calendar. It is Wednesday, November 4th. Uh, you went to bed early last night. We were just talking. I did not. So, you know, I'm feeling it on the afternoon after staying up too long, watching too many election results. So how are you feeling on the day after the voting ended and we still don't know for sure who will be president? So... It's such a good question. It's not even an easy question anymore, you know, because we're all waiting for the results of the presidential election. So what I, I really thought about it and I said that um, I can say it is it is at least well with my soul. And what I mean by that is not like some um, some ethereal pie in the sky, head under a rock or head in the clouds and I need to come down kind of way. 
because it's not well with my country and my kinfolk. You know, I believe strongly in uh, Ubuntu. I am because we are. So my neighbors are not speaking to each other due to political differences. My, my sisters on the border are being raped and their wombs are being robbed of the possibility uh, to bear children. And at least 545 of my children or our sisters and brothers have not, um, have not seen their parents. They've been separated from their parents. On top of that, at the top of my mind, there's at least, at least a million dead bodies piled up due to COVID-19. And this makes me physically sick. So when I say it is well with my soul, that's the only thing that's well right now. Yeah. And as I've been reflecting today, it looks like at this point that, that Biden, well, he, he, he will win the popular vote. That's not a surprise. He will likely win the Electoral College. They've called some important states today, including Wisconsin. And so, you know, it, it's going to be sorted out. But regardless of who actually wins, I mean, we have a very divided nation. We have a president who, even if he loses, received more votes than he did four years ago, despite all of the things that you just said. And so, you know, I, I think that's getting the sense of what you're talking about, this idea of, sure, it's it's maybe well with with my soul, but not with the country and my neighbors. Like, how are we at this place where 47%, 48% of Americans looked at this, just to, just to say this year, not the last four, let's take this year and said, hey, let's have four more of that. Or, you know, and I'm going to take this question even more specific for you. From what I've seen at the polls, and I haven't refreshed in a couple of hours, but it looks like about 76% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, which is down from 80 to 81% that we saw four years ago. But that's still a really, really high mark for a president whose moral character doesn't match anything that I was taught in Sunday school, doesn't match anything I was told growing up in the 90s about you know the character of a president and, and the importance that would have on, on a country, not to mention you know the, the, just the blatant racism and misogyny that we've seen both before and during his presidency. So what do, what do we do with this? You're not just the country-wise, but you know, what do we do with this in our churches? Yeah, clearly we need to have more conversation and there are more side conversations, more parking lot conversations that are being had because you know that tells me, it tells us that the country remains deeply divided along racialized lines, though we nod and smile and we wave at our neighbor, that the country still is made up of union and Confederate states. Now, we refer to them as blue and red states, but I clearly see what it is, and that our churches continue to, to toe the color line. It tells us that there is not a separation of church and state, at least in my estimation, my opinion, that there are Christians, specifically socially colored white ones, that feel that the kingdom of God, the promised land, or whatever metaphor these groups now employ, that this single patch of dirt, this North American part of the earth, and all the beauty and bounty uh, that it has is reserved for a select few who follow a kind of kind of pharisaical rules um, that the agenda, uh, the advancement of one group's way of doing things, which is an expression of assimilation, colonization, and domination, is more important than expressing the the for God so love the world gospel, which includes all people and their. For, which brings me to a point, it reminds, uh, reminds me, it tells me, uh, I'm reading this book by David Swanson, uh, he points out in his book, um, Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity, that discipleship is rarely discussed at the intersection of race and Christianity, and that race keeps us from seeing uh, how much we hold in common with our siblings in Christ. 
Um, it tells me, it tells us that political al alliances or allegiance is more important than our faith confession, that the American flag is more important than Christ's cross, that there's another gospel. Persons have called it the patriotic gospel, and people are okay with that, that American identity, and by this I mean the socially colored white one, is more important than our Christian identity. Yeah, you're hitting at this idea that our, our friends at the Baptist Joint Committee for this liberty talk about Christian nationalism, yeah. uh, which is really more accurately you know, white Christian nationalism. Oh, yeah. right? and, and this is definitely a, it's not just a political ideology, it is in many ways a religious perspective. And mm -hmm. it's a its a challenge to the gospel that we profess to read and to follow and to live. And so, you know, I, I'm reminded of the fact that during this campaign, one of the candidates referred to this being a, a battle for the soul of the nation. And and regardless of, of, of how people voted, that battle was not solved. You know, the, the country is so is so divided, the soul of the nation hasn't been hasn't been solved or saved and and, and wasn't going to be saved by, by a politician. That's the work of the church. And yeah. but but I do think that there was something to be said there that yes, there is something there's a sickness in the soul of our nation. I do think that, that that part was being captured correctly by the campaign, if not necessarily the solution. Yeah, I think what troubles me even more is that um, there just seems to be this 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 need to maintain the image of whiteness, and that that's more important than the the imago dei. That is is more important than seeing all of God's children and the big family picture, and more so that the churches are fine with it. I think that's even more hurtful because you think you share a faith, and that nothing would trump that, no pun intended. But then then you find out that there is something, power. I think I, I thought it was a good pun. I, I, I intend all of my puns. And so, you know, I, I would just go for it, claim it. <laughs> also, I didn't have enough sleep, so I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I'm going gonna, gonna to jump ahead because I think it's, you're, you're kind of hitting something that I think I want to I wanna maybe have you explain a little bit of a concept that you've written a lot about and that, you, that you've talked a lot about. And then we'll kind of unpack this in some other current events and, and issues happening right now. But you, you write a lot about issues of race and faith for a number of publications and on your, your website, racelessgospel.com. And, and I wonder if you could explain to us what you mean, because you've been hinting at it already, I know. And so I, I, I want to get our listeners caught up on this idea of what do you mean when you talk about a, a raceless gospel? And so it's innate to me not to color people in. So the journey began as a personal one. Uh, I have shared this story before. Once I asked my mother, when I was about 19, I was in college, and you asked the question of who am I? And uh, I was asking the question that Howard Thurman was asking, had asked, which is who am I really? And the question came back to me, do I have to be black? And that set me off on a path. And so I went to her and asked her how, you know, how, how I came to be, you know, where'd you meet my dad? Did you all see each other across the, the room and kind of wink at each other, swap numbers. Did you like each other in school? He punched you, you punched him, you ran away. What happened? And she said to me, uh, my mother's uh, African-American woman, beautifully dark woman. She said that she had chosen my dad because he was light skinned with good hair. And that, 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 that declaration that race has the power or had the power at least for my life to determine who I would be, that she didn't care if my father was a good provider, if he had good character or morals, but that the appearance uh, the aesthetic, the aesthetic of skin, uh, that hair texture was more important to her. And my dad is uh, European-American and African-American, uh, was very problematic for me. So it began as a personal journey to understand race, but then it became more than that. Um, uh, the raceless gospel is, is a global call to incarnate uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verses 27 and 28, 
where he says, he says to the Galatians, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ, then there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female for all of you are one in Christ. Well, the raceless gospel says uh, there is no longer beige or black people. There's no longer brown or yellow people. There is no longer red or white people for Christ does not color people in. It is a criticism against the racialization of the gospel, uh, of the divine and Jesus and the segregation of the body of Christ uh, and the moves of the Holy Spirit. It's a theological challenge to Christians who color in the face of God and then color code the body of Christ. It's a challenge to the creation narrative that race offers uh, uh, and a question of the position that it has, has in the life of a Christian. For me, I feel like uh, race has been given a divine status, that it's a silent partner. It's like the fourth member of the Trinity. And so for me, I consider myself a race abolitionist. Some people call themselves um, race eliminativists. It's easier to say abolitionist. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it's just innate. It is what the gospel is about. And it's, my, it's, it's what I've been called to do in the world. Other people have other calls. This is my lane. Um, I can talk about race all day long and, want to get, and I won't get offended once because race is the offense to me. Race is the enemy because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But race would have you to believe that. And that Christians do it is incredibly troubling to me. Because one of the things that's at the heart of what you're what you're talking about here is, and I know this is sometimes hard for us because of the way that we're brought up in our culture, that everything is black and white and Hispanic and Asian, right? And but that these are these are socially constructed terms that race does not inherently exist. You know, particularly the idea of, of whiteness is either you don't go back very far. I can tell you when, because I'm terrible. I'm a nerd. Winthrop Jordan and the White Man's Burden, Historical Origins of Racism in the United States. I quote it often. On page 52, you find this simple sentence. It says, after about 1680, taking the colonies as a whole, a new term of self-identification appeared. White. 1680. Not in the beginning with God. 1680 is when white people, and I'm using air quotes, my friends, came into being. And largely with this idea of justifying slavery. Yeah. Because so it, it to justify why this group of people could be held in bondage and it would be inherited, we had to define them as somehow different. And so that's that's really what we get to this concept of race. Absolutely. So this is, I just think this is really important to understand where people, people understand where, where you're coming from and, and your work as we're kind of talking about the, these concepts and, and the impact on it has continuing on our culture today. Yeah. So I think it's Charles Mills. Uh, he would call it a racial contract. He says the Constitution doesn't read, uh, doesn't really read we the people. It really reads we the white people. It's about exclusion. It's all about capitalistic gain. It's all about monetizing bodies. It has really nothing to do with your flesh at all. It's like whatever we need to do to justify domination and to make more money. It's all about profit. And, and that's what, you know, what I think is particularly concerning when we, when we start looking at this for the church is, so we're both Baptists. And Baptists, even in the South, early on, were not largely proponents of slavery. Now, I mean, it's a little bit of a surprise to us now. When I learned this from a historian, it's like, oh, wow, because you think the Southern Baptist Convention literally birthed to defend slavery. But we weren't historically white Baptists, defined white Baptists in the South, were not for slavery because they were poor. But as they start coming into the middle class, this gaining into the capitalist system, then we suddenly start accepting and defending this. And it, to me, it's, it's all about this idea of what Jesus talked about, right? You can't serve two, two masters and literally says God and mammon. I mean, you know, he doesn't just say just any other master. Like that's the one he chooses because that's the one that we all fall for. 
I'm smiling so hard. This is why Brian is my friend because he knows this stuff <laughs> off the top of his head. I don't have to do the work. This is about money. This is about power. So we, we you know, we, we're, we've talked about these concepts. I'm, I'm like, I'm finally hitting the record button on one of our conversations, but you know, I, I know where you're going. So I have to tell the story. The first time we met, I, I'm pretty sure, is in Zurich at Baptist World Alliance meeting a couple of years ago. And I'm giving a presentation and you're sitting in the front row for some reason, which is like, it's a Baptist meeting and everybody else is in the back row. And for some reason, you're in the front row for this panel conversation. And I'm giving a presentation and then you're like really animated into it, at which... I mean, I, I, I've preached in the white church tradition. And so, you know, we're not used to like, amen, and, you know, helping helping the pastor on. But I get it. Like, it works. So, like, I'm laying out some, some, some hard things that didn't necessarily go over with a lot of people in the room. But the person in the very front row, like, I don't even have to look at the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the group. The person in the front row is really into it. And so I'm like, all right, I am going. And so then, and then you know, we got to talking afterwards. And then I went to one of your presentations and where I heard you talk about the raceless gospel there at that same meeting. And so, and we've been friends ever since. So anyways, I, you know, I just, I just had to say that. Brian Kaler's like, he didn't have a very important fact. He started preaching to the people about the fact that you can't have profits on payroll. <laughs> I will never in my life forget that. You know how many times I've quoted you on that? He was masterful, people. He was brilliant. And I'm sitting there like, amen, preach it, say that. I totally forgot we were in Zurich. He had transformed the space. It was a pathetic word. It was a tough word. And that's why they were quiet. But I wanted to back him up. He had an amen corner in me. That's right. That's right. So anyways, I, I need you at more of my presentations. I like the amen quarter. It's good. <laughs> as soon as this COVID thing is over, I got you. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about COVID. My Lord. I mean, seriously. I mean, right. You know, here we are. We're, we're at least seeing each other virtually on the, on the computer screen here. But, and I know for, for the, you're in DC, which yeah. we'll probably get to that a little bit more in a moment, but you know, for the African-American community, it's been even worse hit. And so, you know, what has this time of coronavirus been for you personally, for, your ministry, what what is this, what has this shown us about our society? So I, that's a very good question. I have already, I lost, my aunt died of COVID. Um, the patriarch of our family, my uncle John, who raised me, um, he also passed and we, I was not able to say goodbye due to COVID. I did eulogize him. I flew home and eulogized him. Um, and so I, I travel with grief now. And I think the problem that I have with churches in general, and I can, and you know, with any of the churches, I'm just going to say, is the that we are living in Friday, death, death, and all I hear the majority of the time are churches moving on to Sunday, like they're showing up with this, not with the suffering, not not with the suffering Christ. They want to give me the shiny new resurrection Jesus, and I keep telling people, no, we are still suffering. You know, we're in between Friday and Saturday. We are not on Sunday. We are grieving. And I think the prosperity gospel has a lot to do that. The capitalist system, let's get them back to work. Let's get them in church. And it's like, no, we are mourning. Where are the Rachels? There's so many people dying. Why are people not in the street weeping and gnashing? Why don't we have on sackcloth and ashes? I watched somebody lynched. I watched Ahmaud Arbery be lynched. I watched George Floyd be choked to death. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. And you're over. I'm not going to get over that. I'm just not going to get over that. I heard him cry out for his mother. How could you not hear Jesus in that? 
How could you, how could you not? So I just, I don't, I don't understand it. I really don't understand it. I am grief stricken. My heart is heavy. Um, I'm sad all the time because of what is going on. Um, and part of that is that of the prophet. You know, prophets do that. You know, I prefer fish guts than talking to God's people. That's just who I am. Um, I was interviewed for uh, another outlet and he said, do you have any hope for America? No, I do not. I don't have any hope for America in the same way that James Baldwin didn't have any hope. In the same way that ta Coates doesn't have any hope. No, no, curse you, you hypocrites. Woe unto you. That's what I have for you. I don't care who gets elected. I still have repent. It's going to be my message. Repent. We are not where we need to be. We have a lot of work to do. And so don't give me the shiny new Jesus. Don't give me the blonde haired, blue eyed, buff Jesus. Don't even give me sweet baby Jesus. And I know he's on the way for Christmas. You know, give me the suffering servant because that's where we are right now. That's where I am right now. That's where a lot of people are. I mean, I'm doing funerals almost every week now. And I don't think people are taking that into consideration with regard to pastors. That grief is a burden. And so I would appreciate it if people would, would tap into that instead of trying to go along, you know, and go along like things are normal. This is not normal. And it's funny because I was doing some research on what churches were saying at the, during the last pandemic. Zero, the theology for suffering during the pandemic. You know how many ser good sermons I heard from 1918? Zero, the church does not know how to talk about suffering, which I think to be quite ironic since Jesus died. I just, I don't understand it. Well, and I mean, you're sound, you're sounding a lot like Jeremiah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Jesus, like this is in I our am neck. definitely Jeremiah. <laughs> Who wrote a whole book? Jonah. We have the book of Lamentations. I mean, oh, absolutely. Oh, I walked through that thing and Jonah because most of the time I'm just like, who? Who am I talking? You call me to who? It is. I told one of my friends. She was like, don't you enjoy preaching? You preach every week. I said, I don't think you understand what a calling is. It doesn't mean I'm called for a lifetime and I say yet. Yeah. No, Jesus has to call me every week. Like, hey, 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 hey. Didn't I tell you to show up on Sunday? You will preach. This. It's a it's a it's a week by week, sometimes moment by moment, where I want to turn the car around and say, "You got him. You better send somebody else because I'm not doing it." Calling in th in this climate, I don't want to do it. Fish guts. I prefer fish guts over catching fish. <laughs> Probably not the answer you were looking for, but that's how I feel. Well, you know, I I had no idea what you would say, but I knew it would be good. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I like this idea of thinking about, I mean, you know, we have over a thousand people a day dying right now from coronavirus in the United States alone. And it's going to, and it's only going to get worse. You know, I mean, we're, we're here, we are the first week of November and November and December are going to be worse and we're heading into Advent season. And so, it, you know, you, you made the comment about Rachel weeping, you know, which is, which is an Advent story that we like to just like jump right past. I had a professor in college who, who joked about that. We don't, we, we jump over the story of, of Herod killing the baby. Like we don't put that in our cute little pageants. And he, he kind of, he writes about like imagining what that would look like. Of like, you have like the Christmas play going on at church and suddenly like Herod's soldiers come out on stage and start killing the babies. And you know, the parents are co covering up all their kids, you know, faces, but we don't talk about that story. And yet, like if there's ever a year for us to not just sing the same old songs, like this would seem to be it, but it doesn't seem like largely that we're able to move into that space of grief and lament. So how do how do we get there? What would be your advice to a pastor or to a, a music leader? Like, you know, in this time, like what what do we do to move from Sunday back to Friday for a bit? 
you know, I, for me, I believe I believe the church in North America is is has been it's commercialized. You know, we're on a cycle, and you're gonna hate this answer, but I, I wish the church would ask more women to preach. I think that would help because I'm so sick of hearing sermons of a, a non-sweaty, non-messy head Mary giving birth to a child. Oh, silent night, you liar. You need to ask more women. Because the nativity scene is a lie. Who gives birth and every hair is in place? Ask more women to explain the gospel. And I bet you you'll get some tears then. Women need to preach the gospel. That's what I think would help us move into that. Because women are in tune with their emotions. You know, we're not trying to be stoic. We're not trying to be cool. We're not trying to be cape crusaders. We, if we feel something, you're going to know about it. But if a woman says something, she's a nag. If a man does it, he's a prophet. So I would say, let the women preach the gospel. You know, you do know that the gospel was given first to the women. I know we don't talk about that either, but they're the ones, you know, that took notes and remembered that Jesus said where he would be while the other people were hiding behind closed doors. <laughs> I think they should give it, give it to the women for a little bit. Let them preach about what it is to give birth to a savior in a really messy space you know, with not good health care or cleanliness and your family's not around. I think women should preach. I don't know. I think you're starting to nag now. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're my friend. <laughs> no, that would be my answer, though. Let, let women preach. I think that'll change. That'll switch it up a whole lot. We need a different perspective. Um, I'm sick of all these named men. Name some women. Call some women out and let them preach the gospel. Let them show you what they see. Um, because what we need now is a heart-throbbing, pulsating, um, compassionate, comforting, nurturing message. And we need something that embodies emotion and the depth of emotion. And I think women do it well. You know, we often get talked about, you know, for it, for our little weeping and everything. But I think it would be helpful. I think it would be helpful to hear from them. Uh, what does it mean to carry the gospel now? You know, when, you're, when your feet are swollen and your belly swollen and, you, you know, you're craving strange things and you can't get them and, can't go where you want to go. It needs to be interpreted in a different way. And when uh, when people are dying because of Herod, I mean, you know, it's a... Yeah. But if you've never lost a child, then how would you know how to... If, if you've never lost a child, you can't expect, to your point about Herod, you can't expect men to, to preach that. They don't know what that... Now, I can tell you what it feels like, but it's going to make you uncomfortable. If you've never had that experience, you're not going to talk about it. But I, I think that would be important. I think a woman would preach that. I certainly would. Those stories need to be told. Those stories need to be amplified because you end up getting a caricature of a gospel or you get this, you know, Santa Claus gospel that's more, you know, a lot more red rosy as opposed to red blood. In case there are any kids mentioning, we should have them turn it off. The Santa Claus gospel doesn't exist. Is that what you're saying? Let me just tell you right now. <laughs> we don't believe in Santa Claus up in this house. I mean, we believe in St. Nick, you know, the, the, the saint, the actual person, but nobody is sliding down my chimney and surviving. I don't care what type of gifts you come packing and consider it a threat, consider it a promise. Uh, you roll up in my suburb, thank you, Trump, because I live in a suburb. Yeah, you slide down this chimney and see what happens. And nobody's going to get credit for what I've done, my hard work, wrap no gifts. I wish you would step up on my roof. Uh-uh. No, so no, we don't believe in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny. No. We're with you actually here. So, you know, Anyways, we, we have to do the whole warning to the son not to not to spoil that story for everyone else at school. But. Oh, it's too late. It's too late. My child is just like me. It's too late. He's like, that's actually not real. You know, my mother said. So you're raising a prophet. Did he go to school and just like shout it from the, from the bleachers? Oh, he's horrible. He's tried to lead people to Jesus via Zoom. <laughs> so they talk about the good Lord. You know, my mother's a pastor. 
And so, yeah, he's a, he's a deacon. I've already, de- we just went ahead and did that. We've elevated him to the position of deacon. Look out, look out world. <laughs> Get us on track, right? <laughs> so my next question is really serious and I'm, I'm trying to like, Secrets back to it, but you 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 mentioned something, and I don't want it to just pass by. I, I want to come back to it. You know, we have seen this year, not that it's new, but we've seen it uh, in more more viral ways. The the deaths of several black men and women from police or armed vigilantes. I mean, it, it, there's been a bit of a moment as well. You know, we've had massive protests in the streets. You know, it, it, it hasn't been just the same old couple of day news cycle. So what has this year been like on that front for you watching this, participating in some of the marches? What, what, are, what are your reflections on, you know, obviously we haven't solved the problems by any stretch of the imagination, but it has been, it has been a, a unique moment. So it's been like church. It's like been like going to church for me. I, I believe very much uh, like Abraham Joshua Heschel that you can pray with your feet. So protesting for me, the chants are like litanies. Songs we sing are like hymns. I've never felt more fully alive, more close to God than when I'm pounding my feet on the pavement, when I'm calling out the names of those who have gone on, uh, that great cloud of witnesses who didn't want to be. I, you know, I heard, you know, I heard about Breonna Taylor's death because you know they don't have any video. Um, I heard way too late about uh, Elijah McClain's death, watching Jacob Blake get shot in the back by police officers who should really operate as peace officers. I would say what I've seen this last year is strange fruit that Americans continue to plant and to nurture and to harvest and to have an appetite for. We've seen what the socio-political construct of race can do and does do to us. Um, we talked about race as a false binary, a, a false choice, as there's no black and white people. I, for me, it became more evident that it's a carnal system where certain persons are, are treated better, viewed as better people based solely on appearance. And that because you have been colored in as white, you are inherently better. Uh, And I see it as a recreation of human beings into colors that cause the senseless death uh, of countless African-American people, which produces more trauma, hurt, and harm. And they are killed because one group feels called, either divinely, politically, socially, culturally, traditionally, or racially, to do so. They feel it their divine right, the natural order of things, to kill people. And I've seen more clearly than ever um, that seeing human beings as colors causes more death than, and division in more ways than one. I feel like persons have died, and I certainly have in certain ways, have died in ways I hadn't expected. And I had more hope for the church, and now I have less than that because I don't feel like the church showed up like it needed to. I'm, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply disappointed. I didn't see enough clergy on the front lines. And I was out there day after day after day. I missed Trump by an hour. I left an hour before he started gassing people, an hour before. I'd been out there all day and I came right back the next morning and sat on the steps. I am an act of defiance because how dare you do that? But I didn't see, I didn't see a lot of clergy folks. And when I did photo ops, you know, it was, it was orchestrated and, and I was invited to come to those, some of those and I, I declined. I'm not coming here for a photo op. I'm coming to march with the people. I don't want another service. I want you to march. I want you to beat your, I want you to pound the street. I want you to put your body on the line, not get on a microphone, unless it's a megaphone and you are marching. And I don't mean at an opportune time that works for you and your schedule. I mean at all times of the night, 
Go early in the morning, stay till late afternoon and pass out sandwiches and then go late into the night with people. And I did all of that and I enjoyed it thoroughly. I felt most alive when I was with them, crying out in the streets. I've never felt like that in my life. And if I wouldn't have done it, I wouldn't have known that church could be experienced at such a deep level. I felt fully alive and most like myself when I was protesting. Nothing like it. I felt like I was most called, like I was doing, I thought I was doing God's work. Like that good trouble I was getting into, I really felt like this is what you're supposed to be doing right now. And I got up every morning asking God, where do you want me to go? And it was always back to the streets. Day after day, week after week, I was there for more than a month, just showing up, just being present. Where are we marching to today? What are we saying today? Who died today? Whose name are we calling today? That became my prayer list. Those names. Yeah, I, transformative experience. Changed my life. Changed my life. I mean, you know, I got some, um, I have some, uh, some things I can share with you. Some rubble and things of that nature. I can't suggest, you know, I can't tell you if I was there or not, but, you know, I have some memorabilia. Uh, <laughs> the false idols that have been uh, erected throughout the street. I, I can't tell you, you know, when I got it or from whom. Um, but it was it was deeply meaningful to be a part of tearing down internal and external structures um, that seek to divide us and that keep us tied to a history that we don't want to be tied to. We're tired of that narrative. We don't want to be enemies anymore. We don't want the traditional hand-me-down hatreds. Why don't I like you? Because that's what we've always done. I don't want that. I don't feel like there's a future with race, which is why I seek to abolish it. I just, I don't see us moving forward with it. And what I think you're hitting at here that is that is so important. I mean, you know, one of the things that this is what Walter Brueggemann talks about, you know, the, the prophets help us to 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 think the unthinkable, to 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 see the unseeable, to imagine the unimaginable. You're, you're trying to help us to see a world that's that that's not the one that we're in, that that the world isn't the way it, it has to be, nor is it the way that it should be. And this idea that that this this construct of race, it's killing us. That's right. Uh, some some more than others, but it it's it's harming all of us. Well, it's killing all of us the same way. We just don't feel it yet. Every time one of us dies, an African American dies, more of you die too. We come, we become less and less of ourselves every single time it happens. Yeah, my one of my favorite quotes is from uh, Gene Toomer says, "I'm building a world." Yeah, that's what Christians are supposed to do. These new creatures, we're supposed to envision something else. So I don't I don't understand the Christian imagination at this point because it looks like more of the same. I just don't understand why we don't have the eyes to see it. Doesn't isn't that the, isn't that the calling? You know, to see something else. But I don't think people realize how tied to each other we are, and how this does not have to be this way. It really, really doesn't. And that you can really step outside of it and see people totally differently. I did it every week when I was on the streets. This guy came up to me to apologize for what his ancestors had done, and I appreciated that. But he introduced himself as a white person, and I said, "You're white. What does that mean?" He's about twenty. And he couldn't answer me. I said, what culture, what language, what tradition? And he just, he's, he's got stuck. And I said, where are your people from? He said, oh, my people are from Ireland. And we had a whole conversation. I gave him a book, <laughs> uh, How the Irish Became White. Had a whole conversation and his eyes opened just like that. He said, I'm not white. I said, no, you're not. 
you're Irish. And I said, the, and it changes the conversation. It lets me know about your language, your culture, your tradition. I said, tell me your mama's name. What's your mama's last name? And, we, and it was it, and it was a soldier's, <laughs> it's a line of soldiers right in front of us. And I watched one of the guys witness the interaction. And his eyes just opened up and he just smiled. This is what happens when you take race away. Because we haven't really met ourselves and we haven't really met each other when you start color coding people in. When I say white person, a bunch of stereotypes and prejudices come up. So I'm never gonna meet Brian. No, I'm gonna meet the colonizer from hundreds of years ago. If I say Brian is a white person, I'm never gonna meet you. I'm never gonna know your mother's name. I'm never gonna know what your cultural history is. I'm not gonna know what your favorite food is. I'm gonna know that you are a white man and you're seeking to oppress me. You are the enemy and I'm supposed to keep myself away from you. When you take away race, you take away all of that, but you also have to invite vulnerability. I have to want to get to know you and I have to really want to get to know myself. And at this juncture in my life, I refuse to be a stranger to myself. That's the thing I had. That's the problem I have with race, that it gets first dibs, that it, it gets to say who I am before I do. And then it's a traditional understanding. You know, it's you telling me who I am because that's how other people have viewed me. No, no. I get a mirror, not a reflection. You understand what I mean? I just I want to know me, who I am really, apart from anybody else's commentary. That's the goal. That's what it's about. It's not about colorblindness or not seeing the implications of race and not knowing that it's a real system. I get all of that. What I'm saying is it doesn't have to be that way, that you can be freed from that. And that's what, doesn't Christ offer that? And if he doesn't, then you need somebody else. Because if, if Jesus can't beat race, what are you here for? Howard Thurman asked the same question about why the church, you ask it in, a, in the preface of Jesus and the disinherited, why the church is not able to solve these kinds of problems. Great question. He said, you got victory in Jesus and I can do all things through Jesus Christ, but you can't eliminate the socio-political construct of race, though it's on the tip of your tongue. Brian Bantam says it is the word we have made flesh. So we have to think about what words we're choosing, which words we're choosing to incarnate and why. We like race because it gives us power and preferential treatment and position. And many Christians don't want to give that up. I think folks don't realize that Christians are more like Caesar than they are than they are like Christ. That's one of the things. And that we're very hypocritical. That, that we may not be Judas, but we might be Peter. Both hypocrites. Both knew who they were and both responded in very different ways, but both hypocrites. Both called by God. One continued on to preach the gospel, the other ended his life. But all hypocrites. But that takes work. That takes conversation. That takes, takes vulnerability and truth telling to yourself. And you gotta really wanna do it. I don't see the church stepping on the heels of Jesus. I see the church going in the opposite direction of Jesus because all roads lead to Calvary and we don't wanna die. Not to that racial self. I know who I am with that. I'm the victim or I'm the, vic or I'm the oppressor. You know, it's master or slave, it's black or white. Now you're telling me I have to venture into this new creation with Jesus? I don't wanna do that. I'll just be a church member. But isn't it easier just to cross by the other side and scoff about who is our neighbor? <laughs> I mean, you know, but no, we, you know, you, you, there's a cartoon I saw years ago about someone, uh, a guy's praying, you know, Lord, make me more like you. And then in the next scene, he's hanging on a cross. And he says, ass. Like, that's not, that's not quite what I meant. You know, but it's, it's, I mean, you're calling us to the tough work, the tough work of the church. Absolutely. And that's part of why I wanted to have this conversation with you because I, I'm I'm fearful that we're we're doing the opposite. The, the, there was a recent poll that showed that actually 
white evangelicals now are less likely to think that there is a problem with racism in our culture than earlier this year. That, that we, we have looked at all of the racial injustices and all of the protests in the street and all of the systemic inequalities that were that were exposed by coronavirus and have said, oh, no, actually, things aren't that bad after all. Because we, if we admit there's a problem, then we have to do something about it. So where do you find hope? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you said you didn't tell me earlier you didn't have hope. <laughs> I have that. I mean... Um, it's a futuristic hope. So I hope, you know, that the church can become what Christ died for, you know, an expression of love, um, that the church, we talked about it earlier, that the church would be more like Christ and less like, uh, the American capitalist system, less like the state, less like the status quo and more like, like the poor and powerless savior. I hope the church of the future uh, is not so hung up on history that is not able to live authentically and fully in the present moment. Ah, yeah, and I hope that the church would, would lead not as a 501c3 organization, um, but as a community that shares all things in common. I have hope in that, but it's a futuristic hope. It's not anything that I've seen um, time and time again. The church has opted not to do the hard work that you, that you and I have discussed already. And it's deeply disappointing to get to this juncture in my life and realize that we're not, we're not doing it. We're not, we're not doing it. We're not, we're not real disciples. We're something else. We're imposters. We're hypocrites. It's deeply disappointing. Deeply. I expected so much more from the church and I thought I would see so much more from the church. And I thought, I thought we were more Christ-like than we are. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's just, that's what I feel, and I'm probably not even on on the same level that you have felt it and experienced it. But it, it is that question of how how could the group that should that should be leading the way miss the boat so often? But of course, it's the same question that you know we grapple with, like how, you know how did we justify slavery? Like, I mean. Because no. we thought we How, were the way. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to be serving the Savior, and then you make yourself the Savior. It's because you swap it. You think you can do that. We'll take it from here, God. It's because we switch places. That happens all the time. All the time. Well, I want to end with making sure we get to this, this question. And you're in D.C., which fortunately, you know, there's, you know, there's no egos and no political messiahs and none of that, none of that in that, that area. So, you know, you don't have to deal with any of those problems. <laughs> but you work for the DC Baptist Convention. Yes, sir. Uh, as the minister to empower congregations. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about DC Baptist Convention as well as, as your work. And, and I will note that we, we've had on the program before she was your new boss, yeah. but we have had yes, Trisha yeah. Miller Manorin on the show. And so bef before she took this position, so she's just been there, what, a, a couple of months? Just a few months. Yeah, she yeah. started back. All right. And so, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the DC Baptist Convention and what your role there is. Well, as you've already alluded to, you know, DC Baptists are <laughs> a motley crew, a mixed bag. It's a global community. Um, it, it's reflective of the diversity in our world. It's a government town. Um, has a region, this region has a bunch of talented and resourceful government workers, which means they are full of Robert's rules and protocol. 
um, that no doubt influences and informs our churches, help us Jesus. There's also um, a breadth and a depth that is evident in the array of cultures and languages and traditions and histories that are presented in our neighborhoods. And I love that about DC. Um, I serve as the minister to empower congregations. And so it's like the Christian education arm or the, of the organization. I offer trainings and lead conversations for lay leaders, deacons, trustees, Christian education directors, and the like. Uh, we have about 157 churches and a few partnerships. And I address, um, we address spiritual formation and discipleship and reconciliation and servant leadership in the 21st century uh, in a post-denominational reality uh, in the midst of a pandemic, hyper-political division, the racialization of bodies, and then in the midst of immense loss and grief. So we try to do that as often as possible through various means, but I very much enjoy it. It is a passion of mine. I mean, I say lay leader with the, exp- with the understanding, as Eugene Peterson mentioned, that there really are no lay leaders, we're all leaders. Um, but that's the terminology that is employed often. So that's a bit of what I do. You know, the rest of the country, we, we tend to see that you're this godless city, the belly of the beast. So I'm glad to know there's some Baptists in the belly of the beast. You are so... <laughs> Christ is present. God is with us. Amen. I think that's a great place to, to close. Thank you so much. This is, this is great. I enjoyed chatting with you and appreciate your work and your challenging words that you always have to offer. Thank you and many blessings on, on all that you're doing. And I look forward to seeing you in real life, not just virtual world sometime. Thank you, Brian. You know you're my brother. So I really appreciate it. It's always good to see you. Thanks for the opportunity to dialogue. You know I love to talk about all things race and religion and politics. So you've whet my appetite to talk about it more. I'll wear somebody's ear out later today. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist About an Adjective. As a reminder, you can find some of Starlet's writings at racelessgospel.com. And you can also find the DC Baptist Convention at dcbaptist.org. As always, you'll find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine... If you're not a subscriber, I have a special offer for you. You can get your first year for half off at tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback for this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.